Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad and with me is Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings. Ben and I are automotive journalists. We haven't talked to each other in a while, have we? Well, we have, but not, auto show. not officially on any form of recorded media now. Yes. So it's time to catch up with all the fun stuff that we've been driving recently, and there's quite a significant list to go through. Um, I had a new Mitsubishi, and Ben had a pair of new BMWs, so let's get to it. What do you think? I Well, let's start with that uh, Mitsubishi you drove. Now, I understand that it was the Mitsubishi um, Eclipse Cross. Is that right? Is that two words? <laughs> yeah, it's two words. Uh, Mitsubishi took one of your favorite nameplates, and then your uh, and then half of your least favorite nameplate. Vehicross? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and stuck it all in the same name. Um, so it's now the Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross. This is a vehicle that will slot underneath the Outlander in its lineup and above the Outlander Sport. So instead of calling this the Outlander Cross or Outlander or something else, um, they call it the Eclipse Cross. And just like the Eclipse Cross, I mean, just like the old Eclipse, this is all-wheel drive and turbocharged. And Ooh. Yeah. But is it interesting? Is it in- so? It, here's why I asked that question. It seems like after having kind of no new product for a really long time at Mitsubishi, we we had like what the Lancer was around for a decade without any changes, and then and then we, got and then got sent away. Yeah, it's not coming back. And now it seems like we've been getting a bunch of really, really, really similar crossovers. Am yeah. I wrong, or is that is that accurate? Okay, so this car is is a little is quite similar to the Outlander. It's more like the Outlander and the Outlander Sport got combined into one car. Um, it's it has apparently the same wheelbase as the Outlander, uh, the regular Outlander. But because you can get the Outlander with three rows of seating, this one you can't. It's only two rows. So consider it a compact. Okay. What else do you want to know about this thing? I, I want to uh, know well, why, why anyone would want it. Like, what's I, the deal? It's very difficult to say exactly why anyone would want it. It is a high-tech and very um, style-focused crossover. What makes it high-tech? It. What makes it high- it, has, it has a lot of function, a lot of uh, features and um, equipment that uh, typically you don't imagine in compact crossovers. So let me let me start. And also, it has a really clever uh, all-wheel drive system, or at least so Mitsubishi says. It uses that super not super handling. What are they called? Um, Super, really, super all-wheel super control. S-W-S-A-W-C. Which is not, which is very far from super handling all-wheel I, you know, But I like that the Japanese automakers have really remained committed to using the word super to describe yeah. features. Like you said, super handling all-wheel drive from Acura and super yeah. all-wheel, all-wheel control from Mitsubishi. It's fun. <laughs> it, it makes me think we're still back in the 80s. Or maybe, maybe there'll be a version of the Eclipse Cross that has like turbo intercooler somewhere on the hood. Yeah, or like, the, or, yeah absolutely. Or stitched in the, in the headliner or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like the even, or something even more cryptic, like, turbo two atmospheric like on the fender somewhere i would like that um i would like that too and especially with the eclipse cross this is a car that um i think is meant to deliver some personality to the mitsubishi lineup and the way it's doing that is by having that coupe like and i call it only coupe like i mean if i could if i could do air quotes uh through the podcasting app then i would be doing that i'm looking at it now it looks nothing like a coupe no, it just has a corner of the traditional two-box format chopped off. So it's like a rhombus. <laughs> <laughs> it's a front Super box rhombus. rhombus. <laughs> and so um, 
it's uh, it's meant to look a little bit funkier than the rest of the the vehicles in the Mitsubishi lineup, and I think they did that really. That that's the that's the key here. It's a, it doesn't look like a family vehicle, and it doesn't look like a plucky little cr- crossover, like say a uh, Chevrolet Trax or something. I don't know. It kind, so. it kind of looks a lot like a CRV. Is it just me? A, uh, a CRV just doesn't have that profile. Doesn't have that. Yeah, uh, I guess side the, profile. the profile is a bit different, but like head on or like three quarter, I'm getting a very a very Honda vibe from it. That's the uh, the the front end grill design of Mitsubishi. I think it's called the shield or the dynamic shield? shield. Dynamic shield. Engage See, the dynamic shield and activate the super all wheel control. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I mean, if you and if you jump inside the car, it doesn't look particularly uh, stark or anything like that. And that's kind of maybe what I was expecting because I think maybe the last Mitsubishi I was in might have been the Mirage, which is a super affordable. Um, I forgot low, the Mirage existed until you mentioned it low quality uh vehicle and this is not that this has much more um much more going on inside and around it for sure um probably the more interesting thing as well is that this car has an all-new powertrain um it's a 1.5 liter four-cylinder engine that's never been used in a mitsubishi product at least in north america before um it makes 152 horsepower and 184 pound-feet of torque and it weighs it weighs 3500 pounds so that's yeah that's that's a little disappointing. <laughs> I think, I mean, the weight is, I think, pretty appropriate for the size of car, but the power seems really limited, and I'm really, I'm kind of bummed out about how much power it makes. Yeah, like, uh, I, I, am I wrong to think that there's no reason why 200 horsepower should not be the minimum in an SUV that weighs that much? I don't know about, I don't know how you feel about that, but I always feel like automakers should be striving for the 100 horsepower per liter benchmark um on a naturally aspirated engine and this is a turbocharged engine making um 150 horsepower and i don't think that's quite enough however let's point out the fact that this car has more torque than a crv i think that's kind of important i guess if anyone was going to buy it oh did i say that out loud (laughs) (laughs) um i'm sorry mitsubishi it has made it that um that engine to a cvt transmission and uh, mitsubishi um, that's a pretty decent CVT. It's very eager to change ratios, and if you so wanted, you could use paddle shifters on the steering wheel to switch between eight um, pre-selected gear ratios. So you can kind of have some fun with this car. And truthfully, the steering and suspension are not crossover-like. They're very planted. Uh, it's very planted, I mean, um, and very responsive as well. And I was, I mean, I was surprised. Um, I didn't expect it to be like this. I can't remember the last engaging uh, Mitsubishi I've ever driven. Are you ready uh, to be su- crossover? Are you ready to be surprised again? Do you know how many Ta- how many uh, Outlander Sports they sold last year in the U.S.? I, I think they sold a couple. <laughs> Thirty three thousand. Hmm. And if you look at the regular Outlander, that's the one that I was I was expecting a much higher number for. I think maybe it must be what I'm hoping seventy. No, the regular Outlander was twenty six thousand last year. Oh and dear. This year though they've sold thirty two, so it's about the same. Okay. So my question is, how much room is there? for this vehicle and is this vehicle going to steal sales away from essentially their entirely crossover only lineup yeah so they they made this really clear that they're kind of moving into the direction of being a very crossover centric line um automaker um apparently you know when they got recently bought by um the nissan renault or integrated into the nissan renault alliance yes the the they were very excited to, and I mean they by Nissan Renault and probably uh, Gong. Is his name Charles Gong there? 
Carlos. Carlos. Charles is his brother, I suppose. You tell me. <laughs> um, Carlos Ghosn, my mistake, is um, was very excited about the off-road brand that Mitsubishi br- brings. And I think in the past, they used to be a very off-road uh, specific vehicle. Uh, if by the past, you mean like 30 years ago, because that's how far back you have to go. I mean... They I don't still know, the sell 90s. in other markets. Just because it doesn't happen in North America doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But it They're, does mean that no one in North America knows about it. That's that's true. But the Nissan Renault Alliance is a global is is taking is trying to take on the world. Um, and uh, I can see where they're where they're going here. And in North America, I I suppose they're trying to reestablish that um, off road. Um, brand. They're certainly not going to reestablish an off-road brand with a 150 horsepower, 1.5 liter continuous road variable focused. transmission <laughs> Eclipse Cross. Like, yeah. I feel like that's lip service at best. I, I, by the way, I was looking at some other sales while you were talking about stuff that no one will will <laughs> that won't resonate in North America, and um, the, the HRV sold 86,000 units this year so far. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, there's a lot that could that can make Mitsubishi um, improve its sales. I think maybe more dealerships would be one aspect. <laughs> I don't think people know where to get a Mitsubishi if they even wanted one. I think people um, just don't maybe even know Mitsubishi is still selling cars. And I don't say that to be sarcastic. I think, like you said, with the lack of dealerships, but also <laughs> a dead lineup for a long time, maybe 10 years. And marketing. Maybe, yeah, it's, it's just they kind of went from being... I guess a, a minor player to not being a player whatsoever. Okay, I need to. I want to. I want to get over. I want to get this car over with. So we can talk about some of the exciting stuff that we have um, in in the podcast. So there are a couple of things worth mentioning. I mentioned an all new powertrain. This car also features a touchpad um, operated infotainment system, which is. I wish they would have rethought about that. I wish they would have thought twice about that. Um, the good news is it has touch gestures like sliding and like two finger sliding to improve, improve the volume because there is no volume knob in this car. Once again, I wish Mitsubishi kind of looked at what's going on in the automotive landscape and other vehicles that have touch pads and no volume knobs and see what happened with their cars. Yeah, touch pads. The reception just, was not. No car needs a touch pad. The, the only touch pads I think make any kind of sense are the ones that are in uh, Audis and Mercedes-Benz where they're on the back of the dial, on the top of the dial. And you can draw stuff? You can draw stuff. And that only the only reason I think that makes sense is because these cars are very heavily marketed in China, mm-hmm. where uh, if you're trying to enter characters that into a, a navigation system or, or your contacts list, it makes much more sense to be able to do that. But no other functionality benefits, I think, from a touchpad. Absolutely. Um, fortunately, this car has uh, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto support, and that is a touchscreen of um, on the dash, so you don't have to use that um, that touchpad. Additionally, well, that's, that's Mitsubishi good. is. Additionally, this is kind of interesting. Mitsubishi is launching a new uh, telematic system in the U.S., which uh, kind of acts like OnStar, um, which is uh, which will be interesting for the couple of people who buy one of these cars <laughs> you think those operators will get lonely <laughs> yeah, like I wonder. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it'll, it'll be like the maytag repairman of the automotive world where they're just it's like a you know they're passed out at the desk or cobwebs are growing from the phone and uh, I, yeah. I, yeah it's just i and they feel, call with with such with such excitement when they find out that somebody has crashed a Mitsubishi into someone else and needs a and needs emergency services. Come on. <laughs> I I I used to be a huge Mitsubishi fan. I, I really loved the Evo when I was growing up. I thought it was the mm-hmm. coolest car. 
Um, and it still is a very cool car. It is, but it's just that heritage that is gone. particular because nothing's happened. Since yeah, that, that heritage is gone, and it, it's really sad to see what's happened to this brand. You know, at least Suzuki just left. <laughs> you know, they knew they they knew when it was time. And Mitsubishi coming back with just SUVs, I understand the reasoning for it because that's all anyone's buying these days. But it, it's kind of weird. It, it kind of makes you like uh, just – I don't even – you know, now combining that with the fact that they're part of the Nissan-Renault alliance, it makes them feel like like the Kirkland signature brand of cars where it's just like we have a bunch of platforms and we're going to sell them and some people will buy them and some people won't. But it doesn't matter because we've already recouped our sunk costs across the whole, you know, the, right. the giant company that we have. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they are going to be if they're going to continue selling cars in North America, they're going to be using Nissan Renault platforms. Um, and in the other direction as well, apparently Nissan Renault is very excited about the PHEV technology that Mitsubishi brings to the table. In particular, that uh, Outlander PHEV is one of the most successful plug-in hybrid vehicles in the world, second well, only to the Volt, which is insane. Well, I'm going to be driving that in about a month's time, so we'll be able to talk about that at the end of January. I'm I'm worried about it because I've already – I mean I've seen photos of it and I drove it last year in Japan and it was – it's it was cool, but it's still a dated looking car, a dated looking platform. It needs more than just offering um, uh, plug in hybrid technology at a, at a low price, arguably a very low price. I think it costs um, thirty five thousand dollars U.S. before I think, any instance. I think you're right. I think that PHEV technology is only a draw itself for a very small portion of the market. It's very niche, so to get people behind the wheel, you might need more sizzle than that. And then there's there's an exciting future ahead for Mitsubishi, though. I mean, they now that they have the the resources of this alliance, I suppose we can mix and match stuff to to um, to improve their product offerings. I mean, I mean, Mitsubishi has had a lot of really cool names in the past. Like they've got three thousand GT, they've got the Lancer Evo, they've got um, Galant, we've got Diamante. Don't didn't they have the Diamante and the uh, what's the other one that was uh, that's like that? Oh, the one that's so good that you can't remember the name of it. <laughs> we've got Pajero and Montero and Endeavor. We've got all these great names. We should just rename Nissans to become them. I mean, why not bring the Patrol over as a Nissan Pajero? That'd be dope. I'm like semi-triggered by your uh, willingness to just squelch years of Nissan history in favor of Mitsubishi history. I'm not squelching, but they're not going to bring certain cars um, to North America under the Nissan nameplate. I mean, the the Patrol, which is an Armada, but a, a beefier Armada, um, is uh, is one of Nissan's coolest cars in in markets that require big tr- big tough trucks and. Um, Mitsubishi, if they have that heritage as well, off-road trucks, they just bring it as a Montero. Why not? Or a Pajero. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, what about like all of those, all of these other, or what about Renault cars? Renaults would be another neat um, source of, of exciting Mitsubishi products. I think that Renault was burned really badly selling cars in North America, and I don't think we'll see them anytime soon. Well, that's why we should sell them as Mitsubishis. Okay, I'll finish up this Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross segment by talking about how much it costs. In the U.S., you can get a front-wheel drive model that will start at under $24,000. The next step up in the trim grade will come with all-wheel drive as standard. Um, Super all-wheel control. Get it right. Yes, super all-wheel control as standard. And all Canadian products will come with uh, super all-wheel control as standard, but it starts at just under $28,000, which I think 
is a bit out of reach for Canadians looking for a compact crossover. Yeah, I think that at that point you're probably looking at something like an Escape or a, a RAV4. Absolutely. So, anything? Any other questions you have with this thing? Are you tired of me talking about? I'm 100% ready to move on from the Eclipse Cross. Okay. So you, after the Ellie Auto Show, you went to where was it? Portugal? Yeah, it was uh, Lisbon, actually. Lisbon. Nice. And what were you doing in Lisbon? You drove a very reasonable car, um, and that would be the BMW i3. I3s. I don't know I3 if I call S. it reasonable. Why not? Um, well, because it's you know it's it's the sportier version of an electric car. So does okay. that really is that like a niche within a niche? <laughs> no, electric cars. I think the point is that electric cars can be a lot of fun with a low uh, center of gravity and instant on torque. I think nobody really realizes just how exciting these things can can be. And in the past, when I've driven an i3, I see a lot of potential with the way it drove. And well, I wonder if the point. i3s um, really capitalized on that, does it? So, well, what they did was, and I don't anyone who's not familiar, the i3 is the entry-level electric, all-electric car from BMW from their whole i division, which essentially only includes the i3 and the i8, although mm-hmm. there's an i8 Roadster coming and there's going to be a four-door coupe um version of the car that will that will slide in between the i8 and the i3 but until that happens what number do you think it'll use i6 i I think it's gonna be the i6 (laughs) i think it'll be the i5 no i don't think we're gonna do uh, uneven numbers we already have one so we can't have two i don't know why i feel that That, that's an unreasonable thing to say in any case (laughs) the i3 what they did with the i3s was they threw away everything that was just there to improve range And they added a bunch of stuff that will hurt range but improve fun. So what? Really? Yeah. So the car has wider tires oh, that are grippier. Yeah. It, instead of being like low rolling resistance style tires, it's got actual semi performance tires. It has a wider track. Uh, it has flared fenders to cover that wider track. Mm-hmm. And the engine itself has been redesigned so that when you're in the upper ranges of its of its uh, power generation, it doesn't run out of uh, it doesn't run out of breath. I don't, it's weird to say run out of breath because an electric motor doesn't breathe. But for anyone who's ever been in a golf cart, you ever notice how like a golf cart doesn't really have a lot of top end power? Mm-hmm. It can feel like that in an electric car too. At least an electric an electric car that's not you know from Tesla. So they they rejiggered the whole uh, electric motor to get rid of that sensation. And they also changed the programming on how the power is managed. So you end up with 184 horsepower and 199 pound-feet of torque, which is not a huge gain. You're looking at 15 horsepower roughly and 15 Mm pound-feet, but the way it's delivered is different. So that that power delivery, is that changed in the motor, in the electric motor, or is it more of like a gearing thing? It's both. The electric motor is different. There's no gearing. It's a direct drive vehicle. Okay. But um, it's it's the electric motor itself is physically different, and the actual uh, the actual way the power is managed because the car comes with a sport mode that you don't get in the regular i3. Oh, cool! And the end result from that is the acceleration is much more immediate, and it's extremely noticeable when you go from normal to sport in the car. It really snaps you back, and you feel like you're getting the full 184 horsepower. That's really cool. I like that. Um... I think it's it's more dramatic with an electric vehicle when you have um, that immediate torque and it really hits you right in the chest, um, like almost when you put your foot down. And and other cars don't get even if a car has a lot of torque, uh, a, a conventional gasoline car has a lot of torque. It has to wind up that engine most of the time to deliver that torque. So you you see it coming. But I mean, with it, an electric car, it just goes bam. It's not it's not a super quick car. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you're still only half second faster to 60 miles an hour than you would be in the regular i3. But where you notice it is, uh, we, we went to the Astoral racetrack and we weren't allowed on the racetrack because, you know, electric car, right? It's not really intended for that type of thing. It's meant to be fun, not not a racer. But um, they had some DTM drivers there from BMW's development program, the German touring car. And uh, Bruno Spengler, who's actually a driver from the Montreal area, was on hand. And he gave me a ride (laughs) through the autocross course in the i3S. And one of the neat things about sport mode is it also allows you to... it, It dials back stability control to the point where you can actually slide the car around, which is really, really rare in an electric car because most electric cars, the way the stability control works is they can just cut off the power instantaneously, right? Because they have that ability to... The electric motor is an on-off switch. Mm -hmm. So this car... It's a very different experience from what you would normally get in an electric vehicle when you're at the limit. And he just cruised through this. It had wet sections. It had dry sections. It had slaloms. It was amazing at how quick the car felt and how completely silent it was the entire time. That's amazing. The potential of the car is is pretty um, – it, it's impressive. But it's not a sports car. It's sportier. I don't mm-hmm. think anyone's going to go to autocross in their i3s. And BMW was really cagey about the whole, well, does it affect range? Does it not affect range? It obviously affects range. They would only, the way they're advertising the range is it's something like up to 125 miles, they okay. won't, they, it, which is the same as the regular i3. So that's not accurate. You're, you're trading some range here because of the, the wider track, the bigger tires, and the more, especially if you keep it in sport mode and you just hammer it all the time. So uh, I, I, all of this rambling on and on is to say I don't know who this car is for. Okay. Well, uh, the problem that ma- the the thing that I see the hardest um, sell with this this vehicle not the dynamics, not the looks, not the interior, not that way of describing this fun to drive. It's the price, man. This is kind of expensive. It is kind of expensive. I mean, the regular i3 is kind of expensive too, but you're you're paying almost fifty thousand dollars before incentives. Yeah, but that's without well in the U.S. I don't you know incentives vary quite a bit depending on what state you're in, but um, that's without the range extender as well. If you want to get the range extender, I think it's another four grand or something like that. Yeah, so that's tough. That's a really tough sell, um, especially with the Bolt, which is which is good, which is very good to drive and and totally reasonable for for commuters. The the Bolt is a much better car. It is mm-hmm. a much better all around car. It is not nearly as sporty. There's okay. very little very little comparison between the two cars, I think, dynamically. Mm-hmm. But there's no question that I would buy the Bolt if I was looking for an electric car. I think well, the Bolt would you is... buy the i3s? No. Okay, so there's there's another car to slot in that in that bucket. <laughs> what bucket? Of cars you won't buy. But that's an enormous bucket. I know. It's more of a swimming pool <laughs> than a bucket, I think. But I I, I do I do think the Bolt is great. Um, I don't know how many people are looking for a semi-sporty or more sporty version of an already existing electric car. So it's it's neat that this car exists. Maybe it's only out there to kind of prolong the life cycle of the i3 because the regular i3 gets a bunch of styling updates to go with the 2018 model year. And the i3 gets a bigger battery. Okay. Uh, last year, you, you were able to order a 60 um, ampere hour battery, I believe, Okay. With with the car. This year, every version of the i3, whether it's the S or not, gets the 94 ampere hour battery. So okay. it's 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 more range across the board. Um, um, so there's a regular i3 and an i3s being sold side by side. Yes. 
Okay. And I think that the S version, I mean, it's 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 niche within a niche, like I said earlier. Mm-hmm. But enough about the i3s because that's kind of that was kind of the the order for the real reason I was in uh, Portugal, and that was to drive the new BMW M5. The M5, holy cow! Yeah. Okay, so this is exciting. This is very exciting. I um, have been waiting to hear your take on the M5, and now it makes sense why you were at the racetrack with uh, with BMW. This is a very exciting car. Tell me a little bit about it. So the big deal um, about the M5 is this is this is an all new platform mm-hmm. for the sedan. It's gonna it rides on the same platform that we saw introduced with the 540 and the M550 and all of that. But the the real emphasis uh, for most people when they see this car is the fact that it has all wheel drive, and that's the first time that any BMW M product has well any BMW M product that's not an SUV mm-hmm. has had all wheel drive, and it's made purists kind of go crazy. In a good way or a bad way? What do you think? I mean, purists are purists. They probably when are purists ever happy. Everything that happens that is not like the original thing is a bad thing, right? Um, so I imagine that they don't like uh, any bit of this, and they don't like how heavy the car has become and how big it's become and how. Well, you know, the, when you say heavy, it's actually lighter than the previous generation car by sixty kilograms. Okay. All right. So that's uh, just just over 100 pounds of lightness. Uh, Actually, that was something that I recall being quite impressive about the the new 5 Series as a whole. Like the 540 is surprisingly light. Yeah, it's uh, the the materials in the car, you know, for the structure and the body. That's where they were able to make up a lot of that uh, weight difference. The other thing about the all-wheel drive system in the car is that it comes with a rear-wheel drive mode. And here's the weirder thing. BMW is talking about it. When they when they refer to it officially, it's four wheel drive and two wheel drive. They don't use all wheel drive, so okay. they're they're very specific about their branding. Interesting. Uh, you get 600 horsepower from a version of the the same engine that was in the previous M3, M5. It's okay. it's got a whole bunch. It's got different turbos and the internals are a little bit different, but it's not a dramatically huge leap for the car because even the previous the 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 was it the F10 version of the car mm-hmm. it had a 600 horsepower competition package limited edition that they put out in the final year, mm-hmm. but this car is faster, both in a straight line and in terms of top speed. It's the power delivery is extremely smooth. Uh, you can drive. Mm. We were driving to the highway. We drove from Lisbon to Estoril at the racetrack where we did put the car on the track. And it's it's you know it feels like pretty much any other large German sedan with a whole bunch of power. You don't notice the power until you stand on the gas, and then okay. all of a sudden you're doing 150 miles an hour. Okay, okay, okay. Hold up. I mean, I've got a bajillion questions here. We got you gotta you gotta slow down for me. I know you probably have like a, a script or a notepad or something. Crib no, I don't have any of that. Okay. I'm not nearly so, as prepared as you think I am. So I need to ask you so many questions. This 4.4 liter V8 is it similar to what you, we can get in the five in the X5? In the X5. Yeah, because or the or the M550. I don't know. I would assume so. Okay, because those are the other five. Those are the other V8s that I've driven in the, in the BMW lineup, and they were really impressive motors. Like I, I liked them a lot. Um, they delivered a lot of power. They made just as you said, super linear, super smooth, and um, yeah. The the moment you're like, oh, I guess I'm setting off now, and then suddenly you look down at the speedometer, and you're like, oh man, I shouldn't be doing that. Um, and you, it just happens so gradually and naturally and, and smooth without any like feeling of of that that's happening. Is that the case with this car as well? 
Yeah, it's it's a very smooth car. The other thing that's that's uh, differentiates it from past versions of the M5 is this is the first model to not be available with a manual gearbox. Oh. So it's an eight-speed automatic. It's a very very good eight-speed automatic. Okay, that's another interesting thing. Why is it an automatic and not one of those um, M dual clutch transmissions? Uh, I think because people are just tired of the whole dual clutch thing. <laughs> I, I no, but. <laughs> Dual clutch transmissions are more complicated than than torque converter automatics, and torque converter automatics are so good now. There's no reason to not have them. We're not we we're well past the era where there's a measurable difference in speed. I think the M5 does 60 in something like 3.4 seconds, which is incredibly quick. That's so how much are you like really? Yeah, how much are you really going to save by going to a dual clutch setup at that point? I don't okay. I don't think very much at all. Okay, and um, now we're going to bring up the, the topic of the purists again. Um, even non-purists have been kind of disappointed in BMW M, M Division's cars. I mean, I think you and I have both said some unflattering things about the four and um, the M4 and the M3. Yeah. Well, Is, those, are, those are really... I think that the experience is quite different. I think that BMW yeah. has... so hit me with t- this. What is, what, what, is, what is the new thing? I think they've taken a lot of that criticism to heart. I think that Wicked. the so the, the car first of all it sounds good. Okay. Uh, there's obviously fake sound being put into the cabin via the speakers like Even every with single, a V8? Yes. But yeah. if you roll down the windows or when it's going by you on the front straight of a racetrack, it sounds good from outside the car too. So of that's it nice. Is. Still a V8. Well, there's not every not every V8 has a nice sound. I mean, okay. some some cars are pretty muffled. Uh, and especially turbo cars, it's not a given that you're going to get a, a nice sound out of that. But you don't just get that nasty turbo whoomp off throttle noise that you get in the mm. in the M3 or the M4. But uh, what's what's interesting about the car is it feels like a very managed experience. Uh, there's there's different modes for the four wheel drive system. So when you're in your regular four wheel drive. You have a fair amount of intervention from stability control and whatnot. If you're on a racetrack, you're going to notice it. You're not able to get on the throttle as quickly as you would want, that kind of thing. But if you switch to M-Dynamic mode and put four-wheel drive in sport, the car will actually let you get a little sideways even though four-wheel drive is working. And BMW has said that it's almost exclusively a rear-wheel drive car until it needs power to the front wheels. So there's no nominal split between the front and rear. And if you really want to go crazy... You can turn off four-wheel drive entirely and go into two-wheel drive mode. And but there's kind of, that? Well, there's an asterisk to that because in order to get to two-wheel drive mode, you have to select stability control, turn it off, and then two-wheel drive becomes available. So you're, you're, you're driving without a net, mm-hmm. and you're driving without any kind of traction management. So that's a little frustrating because if you look at cars like the CTS-V, which I think is the, the lone outlier – well, the, uh, the Alfa Romeo – Quadrifoglio is also rear-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. But the CTSV has different levels of traction management, so you can either be full off or go through the five levels of PTM and kind of pick the sweet spot where you still have some something fighting against wheel spin in the corners but still letting you slide if you need to. In the M5, it's not like that. It's, it's all or nothing. So it's really – they were talking about it as a drift mode. To me, I'd rather have the best rear-wheel drive – performance possible and the option of drift mode rather than forcing me into a mode that's just going to incinerate the tires because that's what happens like right i was sliding the car around historical with the tires spinning and smoke coming out the back and it's very controlled and very easy to do that but it's not necessarily the fastest way around the track so i don't know it's 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 an interesting car it's it's a very i would say a very managed m experience okay so this this brings up a lot of things first of all um 
I love that you brought up the uh, the Alfa Romeo Giulia, which is which has been a really surprising car in in this year's uh, product, you know, launches. It, but I think it's a bit smaller, a bit too small to to bring up in this in this conversation. The CTSV, on the other hand, I am I wrong in thinking that like the CTSV, the E63 in this car, it paints a really wonderful picture for cars like fast sedans. Um, I think that's amazing. And um, it's a tough choice between all three of those, isn't it? Well, I don't know if it's a tough choice because I think the three cars represent very different experiences. I think that the, the Mercedes-Benz is, is very muscle car-like with a ton of, a ton of grip. Mm-hmm. The M5 is it, it's not necessarily a muscle car, but it does have – it feels like a very complete car on the track. Like It was fun to drive even though I knew that um, a lot of my mistakes were being taken care of by the traction control systems. The CTS-V out of the group is the car that, well, first of all, has the most power – but second, it also kind of gives you the it's it's the last of the the rear wheel drive cars that's not completely frenetic like the Quadrifoglio. It, mm-hmm. it it has those gradations of performance and allows you to access them in a surprisingly easy way. I, I think it's cool that we have these three different choices. Isn't that um, great? I think that's really cool. Yeah, the one thing that was disappointing though about the M5 was it, it, it's ten thousand dollars or so more than it was in the previous generation. Okay. And yet. It's still not the most powerful car in its class. 600 horsepower. That's 40 I less than the CTSV. I think it's going to be the, most, the lightest, though, won't it? I don't know because the CTSV is very light as well. Okay. So it's like, why not make it 650 and then you have bragging rights? It was. It seems like kind of an odd decision on BMW's part, in my opinion. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to bring up, you said very managed experience. I have a really, I, <laughs> I hate. I, I really like the way you describe the car, but I hate the fact that you have to go into M dynamic mode. You have to turn this off. You have to go put this item into sport mode, and then you have then you're in that mode that you need to be in. You need to be in the fastest mode possible. It seems like there's a lot of little things that you need to do to get the most out of this car. When I kind of just want it to work right out of the box. Well, yeah, it's it's you know. There's this a whole a, bunch of buttons. This is like a nerd car, man. Like this is a super nerdy car. <laughs> well, they, they they let you shortcut that with a kind of a clever feature called the M button, where it's on the steering wheel, and there are two programmable buttons where you can, you know, how you have an individual <laughs> mode in so yeah. many different cars these days. Yeah. Instead of having to access individual mode through the console or this the infotainment screen or whatever, you can just program code one of these buttons to be like, okay, I push this button, and it means no traction control, two wheel drive, and we're off. Mm-hmm. Or you can push it and be like, okay, M dynamic four-wheel drive sport and we're off mm-hmm. so that's really cool because i don't like like you said the, the process to get to two-wheel drive like holding down the traction control button and then on yeah. the center screen it pops up and says do you want to go to two-wheel drive so and this is like say yes like, like normally there's a konami code and like having the two m buttons is like the game shark yeah it's like the game shark of the game genie for the m5 it just it's like here here you go here's the fun <laughs> but it, it's cool it's cool in the sense that, you know, previous M buttons were different, right? They were like, if you push this button, your car drives how it should. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Here's the power that you thought you bought right out of the factory, you right. know? Like, you don't have to do that in the M5. It's always 600 horsepower. But when you turn on the key, it's going to be in regular, not going to kill you mode. Mm. Um, and it makes you go through these steps to get to kill you mode. Or you can shortcut them and just kill yourself right away. <laughs> okay. Let's not advocate that anyone do that. Um, the other idea that I wanted to bring up is... It's a very expensive car, over $100,000, and I said this about the E-Class as well. It does feel like two different cars in one. When you don't drive this car like a like it, like it on a racetrack, 
it's very manageable. It's very quiet. It's super soft. It's very spacious and it has a huge cargo cargo capacity. Can the same be said about the M5? Can you can you look at this car when it's when it's in the sedate mode and be like, yeah, it's just a regular five series? Or does it look scary and angry and it has like it has like you know big vents and things that make it look obnoxious? No, I, it's it's really very much how you're describing it. It, it. it doesn't look scary and angry. In fact, I'm a little worried about um, how similar to the regular 5 Series the car is. And you're when I say regular – Yeah, because if you look at – when I say regular 5 Series, look at the M550. Mm-hmm. I think the M550 gives you 80% of what you get in the M5 for 75% of the price. No M buttons, like, though. No M buttons, that's true, and it's not a real M car, but BMW has created this situation where uh, M is such a commodity now, and you can get M badges on cars that aren't M cars technically or traditionally or however you want to look at it. So you're still getting a very, very fast car from the M550, but you don't have to pay the M tax, the same level of M tax. It's like a $30,000 difference between the base cars. And most people, I would say 80 to 90% of people who buy an M5 will never go to the racetrack. And that's where the differences between the M550 and the M5 really make themselves known. If you were to park them side by side, I think the M550 would look marginally less aggressive, but I think it would still look like a like like a handsome car. So it's really like, who is the customer? I know I said this for the i3S earlier, but who's the customer for the M5 now? Someone who wants the best of the best. They want to go into a dealership and they want to say, I want the best car that you guys have, the newest best car that you guys have. And I honestly, from what I'm looking at through the BMW lineup, this is definitely it. Well, it's definitely the apex of M cars. Right. There's no question about that. It is the flagship M car because you know there's no there's there's no halo car at the top of BMW's lineup. Um, we've already talked about the i8 as being kind of a halo car, but that's an entirely different animal. Yeah. So traditionally, and, and one thing I like about the M5 is BMW is not afraid to take risks with it. We've had V10s, we've had turbo engines, we've had straight sixes, we've had V8s, and now we have all-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. So it's People like to complain about, oh, this M5 is throwing out everything that's made previous M5s great by going to this all-wheel drive, automatic-only situation. You know what? That's just not true. That's never been what the M5 has been about. Mm-hmm. So kudos to BMW for pushing forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope that a lot of the the fun sensation that I got from this car trickles down to the M3 and the M4, and those cars can kind of re- redefine their mojo and get back to the place where they used to be. Okay, I still I have so much more I want to bring up because this is a huge, this is a really significant car for BMW, um, and there's a lot to talk about because it's so first very expensive, very high tech. One of the things that also BMW purists would complain about would be um, steering feel. Now, this is a big car, so of course it's not. I don't think steering feel will be properly translated into the into the driver. But do you have some steering feel? Does it feel better than the M3, M4, the M2, which is really disappointing for me? Well, Tell me I, this, I don't. This feels like I, something. I wasn't really disappointed with the M2. I thought the M2 was a big improvement over the M240. Okay, but it's. Uh, it's a large car with electric electric power steering. I mean, what do you? At what point are we going to forget what fun steering felt like? You yeah. Know, like, okay. We're we're really well beyond. Um, I can tell you this though: the the all wheel drive system doesn't really feel like it's feeding any understeer into okay. the car at all. I That's think the car is. Cool. Yeah, I think the alignment on the car is really well done. I think BMW has done its. Obviously, they know what they're doing when it comes to suspension tuning. So, 
the the car feels lively it turns in nicely even on a racetrack the only times it pushed was when i did something stupid so i can appreciate that now i know you're 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 being funny with you know when, when are we going to feel what good steering feels like or when are we going to forget what good feelings good steering feels like so this is something that me and you have talked about with um, Porsche. Porsche has unbelievably good electric steering. Um, and the Panamera follows that trend as well. So I guess maybe there's still an item there for, for BMW to improve upon? I don't know. I think it drives a lot nicer than any Panamera I've ever driven. But okay. the Panamera is a much larger, heavier car. Okay. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to bring up is you brought up the, the the really important factor that is this is very close to an M550 and Mercedes AMG has avoided this by offering the E43 AMG, which is drastically less powerful, um, much less expensive and uses a six cylinder instead of a eight cylinder like the E63 does. Um, do you think BMW would be smarter to make the the less the lesser product or the next step below the M5 to be something that far apart or no, no, I don't think so because I think the 540 compares against the E43 in terms of performance. Okay. All right. I don't think, I don't think there's a case to be made for E43 versus M550 other than price. I think that, mm-hmm. um, the differential between the 540 and the E43 is not that great in terms of performance. So uh, the, the E43 is kind of in a weird gray zone. I, I don't think it's a similar situation. That's really I, ex- that's really interesting for you to say because, yeah, one has a 4.4 liter V8 and the other one has a uh, 3 liter V6. Yeah. Turbo, and they're both turbocharged. To yeah. see that their performance differences are not that vast, that's crazy. I mean, yeah. I think that's well, I mean, it, show, it, it, it goes it, to show how far we've come. Um, anyway, it's just, you know... We're getting to another point, too, where I think it's harder and harder to make direct comparisons between one automaker and another. Yeah. They're they're getting uh, – each of these car companies has their own methodology for product planning. And filling up they, white space that people will be wanting to purchase cars in, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that that's, that's a really solid point. I think that more than comparing themselves – like I don't think people at BMW are looking at Mercedes and going, oh, we need to counter that vehicle with a version of our own. Mm-hmm. I think exactly like what you just said, they look at their lineup and say, what are we missing that people want to buy? Mm-hmm. And then they build that car. And if it happens to match up against something that Audi's selling or Cadillac's selling or Lincoln or whatever – then that's great. But if it doesn't, that doesn't matter because ultimately they're looking for their customers. Okay, Ben, I think that's all the things we need to talk about in terms of uh, the drives that we've we've um, recently had. But there's one more thing. I'm going to surprise you here because uh, we didn't talk about this before the podcast started recording. But there's one more thing that I think is pretty important to mention, and that's a new McLaren. Um, and not only just a new McLaren, a new like top-of-the-range McLaren, something to replace the P1. Um, and that's it used to be called the P15. Now it has a full name. It's called the McLaren Senna, named after uh, Arton Senna. Have you heard about this? Do you know anything about this? Do you want me to tell you all you need to know about this? I've heard about it. I've seen some pictures, but uh, why don't you tell me more about the car? So this is a, it uses a, it's a mid-engine car, as most uh, I think almost every McLaren is. It uses a twin-turbocharged V8 that makes just under 800 horsepower and just under 600 pound-feet of torque. It uses a rear-wheel drive setup and a seven-speed dual-clutch transmission. But the thing you really need to know is that it looks kind of crazy. Uh, I believe it has windows inside of the windows, and it also has a window inside of the door. It has a really ridiculous-looking spoiler on the back, um, and it's a very uncompromised speed machine made for the road. So um, I really encourage uh, our listeners to find uh, an article on this thing, take a look at it, and maybe give us uh, their take on it. But in the meantime, Ben, what do you think of this million-dollar 
um, McLaren. I'm going to be straight up honest with you. I'm not really that interested in supercars. Oh, this is a hypercar though, Ben. Hypercars, whatever you want to call them. They're so far removed from my reality and the reality of almost everyone who reads any of my work <laughs> that, uh, you know, it's it's great that they exist. I don't really want to – I don't want one in my life. It's not something – I don't aspire to own or drive these cars. It, they're kind of like novelties, I think, to me. I think you're. I think that's one way to look at these things. But just like we did with the M5, I think we need to bring up the fact that supercars and hypercars kind of set a benchmark in terms of performance that some automakers or in other ways can trickle down into other vehicles in the future. Um, oh, for sure, for sure. But I mean, you know, a company like McLaren isn't necessarily the kind of company that's going to do that. These, they're not. They don't produce production. You know, yeah, they don't high regular, volume production. Yeah, they don't cars. make high volume production cars. It's like it's like the Bugatti Veyron, Viron, however you say but it. That Turin, was a of, but that was a part of a, a Volkswagen Auto Group, and you know they they learned a lot about turbocharged cars and lightweight materials. I, I'm assuming um, that should be trickling down to the rest of the Volkswagen um, and, Auto Group. And sure, as an as an engineering exercise, I guess it's interesting, but I can't think of a car I'm less interested in driving. Like I don't. There's just nothing about that car that appeals to me. All right, so uh, I'm just, just I'm just putting this out there for all the McLaren, all the folks at McLaren. Um, when you send out the invites, Ben isn't interested in it. Send Sammy on it because he's clearly uh, done his homework. He's he's paid attention to this car. He wants to drive it, right? <laughs> if Laura is listening, don't pay attention to Sammy. He oh, look know what who's talking about. Look who suddenly wants to drive the McLaren. <laughs> I'm look. I'm not disparaging these cars. I have driven McLarens in the past, and I've enjoyed them. What I'm saying is I don't aspire to own them. It's not – it's it's just so outside my experience. So when, when these cars come out, I don't necessarily know how to react. It's it's like one-upmanship. It's this – what was the car recently that set a, a speed record? Was that also a McLaren? A speed record? Oh, yeah, there was um, a – Koenigsegg, I believe. Koenigsegg. So – that that's great. I've been to the Koenigsegg factory. I've I've talked to the engineers there. I've seen how they build the cars. It's a fascinating process, but I don't know how to relate that process to my own life. And I guess that makes it harder for me to connect to those cars. When I was a kid, I didn't have any supercar posters on my wall. Okay. I just didn't. It wasn't my thing. There was no XJ220 or F40 or anything like that. I think those cars are cool, mm-hmm. but it's not like I wasn't I, if one drove drove by, I wouldn't be like, oh, I have to, I have to have that one day. I have to drive that one day. I don't know. I, I guess what I'm saying is. So what did you have, Camrys? No, the only modern car I ever had on my wall was a, a Viper. I had that when yeah, I was a I kid. Yeah, I had a Viper it, and an NSX and an XJ220. No, I had, uh, I had a whole bunch of Volkswagen Beetles. I had Studebakers. I had uh, Ford Thunderbirds. I had Mustangs. That that was the kind of stuff that I guess was attainable. Yeah. And uh, that that's where my interests lay. And I, it's still kind of like that. I still kind of – I'm more interested in older cars or cars that uh, are more relatable to people who are actually going to buy them. If I write about a McLaren or a Koenigsegg, no one is going to buy a car based on what I said about right. the McLaren or the Koenigsegg. I mean that's, no not one the, that's not the point of why you want to write. You need to write – you need to translate that experience to some people who, are never, who will never be able to drive them. And I think that's what's, that's what's exciting for me. And I think that's okay. – I think you would be really good at that by the way. So 
Um, and you did that really well with the Ferrari in recent times. And um, I've tried to do that with the Hur- with the Huracan, the Aventador in some recent times. So it's always fun to drive these things and to try to translate them in ways that um, maybe not everyone will be able to um, relate to. But then you find a way to, to, to get it to people. I feel like I was just a downer for like the last 10 minutes. No, like, no, no. Of course not. Ben just doesn't get supercars. Like, why can't every car have like Fred Flintstone brakes? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm actually really in, I mean, we can we can tra- we can continue this conversation really quickly. But to me, it's like sci fi. It's like when you read sci fi or, or watch sci fi and you're like, wow, the future is so exciting, and energetic and and different. Um, and to me, hypercars and supercars really portray that. Um that forward thinking of the of the the automakers and what I'm, I'm a huge sci-fi fan and I've never thought about it that way and I can't relate to your analogy at all. All right, so if you can relate, if, if the listener out there can relate to either of our uh, viewpoints, if, I if suggest, anyone in our audience isn't dead inside like Benjamin is, <laughs> then I suggest you reach out to us because it's very easy to do so. You can reach us uh, through Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing, and Benjamin is at Hunting Benjamin. And if you want to listen to more of our podcast, you can go to our website. That's unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. You'll find all of our old stuff there as well as links to our social media pages and um, some photos of the cars that we're talking about as well as links to those articles where you can read what um, more in depth what we think of these cars. You know, one of the things I do think is really cool about supercars is how they relate to the factory racing programs that that are behind them. Mm -hmm. So when a company like McLaren or Mercedes or Ferrari builds a street car that uses racing technology or uses a street car to explore technology that could be used in racing, you know, the two-way street there, I do find that fascinating. And I, I think that it's really interesting that there's a way to access racing technology that you know, no one's there. 99.9% of human beings will never be behind the wheel of a Formula One car. But if you if you're driving a transmission or a traction management system or an aerodynamics feature on a car that was developed in Formula One, I think that that is a really fascinating link to competition. All right, and that's where the this is where the Senna sits resides in your head now. I don't know. I mean, why not have like a single make Senna racing series? That would be really cool. It would be very I think expensive. I, I, I think I would be interested in that. Well, all racing is expensive, <laughs> Sammy. <so. laughs> um, anyways, man, I was trying to end the podcast and you wanted to throw in your, your Ben's uh, monologue at the end there. That was really I, nice. I just feel like I was kind <laughs> of a dick. <laughs> all right. Anything else you want to say well, as we close this up? I'm afraid to say more. I'm afraid of what's going to come out of my mouth. And I'm... <laughs> Car companies are going to be like, well, this guy really hates everything we do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, You can also find us on Facebook. Um, Just search for the Unnamed Automotive Podcast and you will spot our glorious little logo there. Um, Thank you for listening and we'll catch up with you all next week.